You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. Yeah, those of you watching on stream, you know, you should come. It's fun in here. We are looking at Matthew. We've done Easter. We're done with that. Well, we're not done with it, but it's done with the sermons on that. We want to go back now to Matthew chapter 14. So if you've got your Bibles, grab them on your device, whatever, we'll put it up here too. But first I want to just remember something that happened this week. What happened this week? I mean, the event. What happened this week? Prince Philip. How old was he? 99, two weeks short of his 100th birthday. And you see him, you know, these, uh, you, know, you know, he is a military officer by virtue of what he was. But when you think of Prince Philip, when I do, I always think of this. He's basically never by himself. He's always with Queen Elizabeth, always regal, which is fitting. I mean, she is the queen. This was their wedding. How long ago? 73 years ago at their wedding. She was a young woman then, uh, 1947, the year I was born. They were married. Presented to the crowds there in England. And that picture of them together, her as queen, him as consort, it kept going forever. It never stopped. So faithful to each other in the way they did their life. This in their honeymoon picture, I mean, it just radiates love, doesn't it? Doesn't it? But it radiated as an old people, too. A life of long faithfulness. All kinds of pictures, if you've been watching the news, one of them that was very powerful was this one. After Princess Diana, who had been divorced by Prince Charles, multiple affairs on both sides, she's no longer a member of the royal family. But Prince Philip said, we will honor her, despite the fact that she's divorced from our son. And he walked with his son, Charles, and his grandsons behind her coffin to honor her. It's the kind of man he was, but a man of grace. She didn't deserve it by legality, but she deserved it because she was a person. And he expressed his love to her in very specific ways. Prince Charles, the heir apparent, so when Queen Elizabeth dies, he will become the next king. Very different legacy. Very different legacy. Divorce, multiple affairs, now married to a woman he lived with for a good while, famously in all the gossip columns. And his son, Harry, nobody's quite sure what he's up to, except he's going to have a second kid. It just, you see the difference in the generations here? And that's what we're thinking about here when we think of Matthew 14. We're talking about two feasts. And I want to consider them separately and then together. So if we turn our scripture to Matthew chapter 14, the first feast. At that time, Herod, the Tetrarch, heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. That's why his miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, to explain... Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. 
For John had been saying to him, It's not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John. But he's afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised her an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, Herodias, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed. But because of his oaths and dinner guests, he ordered her request to be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought on a platter given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus the word of the Lord. One more time. The word of the Lord. Thank you. You are there to it too. I look at this, and this is the first feast. And I call this feast the feast of indulgence. It's a, I look at Herod here. Now, this is Herod the Tetrarch. There are actually four Herods that are children of Herod the Great. And there's a whole incredibly long story behind this. But when he heard of Jesus doing the miracles, his superstitiousness came out. And somehow he had the idea that John the Baptist was a reincarnation or something of John the Baptist. That Jesus somehow, it's, it's weird, I mean, they're about the same age, but his superstitiousness led him to a very strange interpretation that Jesus was an incarnation of John the Baptist. So strange, so strange. So strange. But what he had done, he had arrested John the Baptist. And the intrigue behind this, because see, Herod here was married to the daughter of Philip, the king down from where Petra is. If you've seen pictures of Petra, southwest of the he had married Het King's daughter. But then he saw Herodias, the wife of his half-brother, Philip, and said, man, she's like hot. Tossed away the other king's daughter, led Herodias to divorce his half-brother and brought her in. Good night. Does this sound contemporary or what? It does full of nonsense, full of debauchery, and John the Baptist had said, it's not lawful for you to have her. He's a prophet. He's just saying, dude, like, come on. This is not okay. And what we're seeing here is Herod is characterized by guilty conscience. So he arrests John to get him out of the way. He silenced him. He canceled him. But it didn't quite work. Because you don't shut up a prophet by putting him in prison. So birthday party. If you're a tetrarch, king of up in Galilee area, and you have a birthday, who are you going to invite to your birthday party? Mark tells us he invites all the important people. 
I mean, this is the elite crowd. Come to my birthday party. We're going to have a blast. And your imagination can fill in pretty quickly what's going on because it invites you to do that. Herodias, daughter of Herodias, Salome is her name. She's probably 12 years old. And what kind of dance do you think she's doing at this debauched birthday party? Well, we call that contributing to the delinquency of a minor when you do that kind of a thing. And, but he's drunk, he's in front of all his friends, and his 12-year-old daughter does this incredible dance, and he just goes crazy. You can have anything you want, up to half my kingdom. You know, it's a ridiculous oath. See, what he's characterized here, Herod, a lusty sensuality is controlling him. It led him to divorce his wife, to take Herodias, and now Herodias, because of her hatred for John, sends in Salome, or maybe he invited her, we don't know. And her incredible lascivious dance has driven him crazy. Lusty sensuality is controlling everything in this feast. Anything. Hey, Mom, what should I ask for? <laughs> See, Herodias hates John the Baptist because John the Baptist won't shut up pointing out their sin. So, platter, head of John the Baptist. It's kind of the ultimate insult to a person to cut their head off. I mean, we've seen that happen in some of the stuff that's going on around the world. If you really want to hurt somebody, you cut their head off it's, and put it on a pole or platter or something like that. The king was distressed because the oaths and dinner guest, he ordered the request granted. Now, why does he get into that? He hasn't killed her, even though Herodias is pushing him to do it. Why now? First of all, he's drunk. Second, he made a stupid oath. And he didn't want to look bad in front of his friends. And see what's happening here. He's also controlled by his desperate need for approval. You see, people that get into powerful places by manipulation of power know that somebody else can manipulate power too, and he can be kicked out as easily as he was put in. In fact, that happens later on. Just a short while after the story takes place, he miscalculates, and he's accused of conspiracy against the emperor by his Nabataean father of his divorced wife, and he is brought up for charges before the emperor of Rome and sent into exile, and he dies in dishonor. His reason for fear is real. But see, that's the kind of man Herod is. This is a picture of what that might have looked like. There are a lot of pictures of this. You see the executioner putting the head of John the Baptist on a silver platter, and you see Herodias there in the middle all kinds of pearls and other things of richness. And, but my attention is drawn to, as it should be, by the way, the lighting of the paper is done. This is about a 1670 painting by Eronio Manerexis. This 12-year-old girl, and it's done tastefully, but you can see she's dressed extremely sexually at 12 years old. And she's looking at the head of John the Baptist. There's no indication that she wanted the head of 
John the Baptist, but our mom did. And I just look at that, and I think the author invites us to think, what is the attitude of Salome as she is now carrying the head of John the Baptist on a silver platter, 12-year-old girl, into her father, Herod? What is she thinking as she does that? It's a horrible picture at this first feast. And what happens here is, reminded back in the Old Testament, Ahab and Jezebel hated Elijah because of what he had done to call them out for their sin. And so Herod and Herodias opposed John, who comes with the spirit of Elijah. It keeps going on. That's the first feast. The feast of central indulgence, self-centered in I get what I want, even if it means, well, this, I mean, it's, it's quite a feast. It's quite a feast. And we have those same feasts going on today, exactly the same kinds of feasts, often with power, often with celebration, often with debauchery. But there's another feast, thankfully. When Jesus heard what had happened, the murder of his cousin John the Baptist, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd. He had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so I can go to the villages and buy sell some food. Jesus replied, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. We, we have only here like five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them to me. He directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate were about 5,000 men, not counting women and children. This is the word of the Lord. A second feast, very different feast. This is a worshipful feast in the desert. But let's look at the feast. Just to put it where we locate this, uh, Nazareth is down here. That's where Jesus was born. It's up in the hills there in Galilee. And up there is Magdala. That's where Mary Magdalene is from. I hope you're watching The Chosen. Mary Magdalene's a major character in there, as she is in Scripture. Woman of seven demons who's rescued out of awful place. She's from Magdala. And Capernaum, well, that's where Peter probably lived. That's a center of a lot of Jesus' ministry. Tiberius down here is where Herod's palace is. He built that place. It's a seaside resort. Uh, it's a very nice place, and he built all kinds of stuff there to celebrate himself. And the feeding of the 5,000 is up between Magdala and Capernaum. 
And it's probably very near where Jesus fed the disciples after his resurrection. That's the spot. And the crowds went up this way as Jesus went up the lake to that spot because they wanted to be with him. This is the Church of the Multiplication. There was a Byzantine church built there in about 380 B.C. It's one of the earliest churches built. It's on the place where they believe that that feeding of the 5,000 happened. The church was expanded and mosaics were putting in in the mid-400s, and then it was destroyed by the Persians in the mid-600s, and it disappeared. Nobody knew where it was until it was discovered at the end of the 1800s. And in 1932, they were doing excavations there, and they found the foundation of that Byzantine church from 350 A.D., and they built this church on it. And here, under the altar, you can see the sacred stone, and the story is it was on that stone that Jesus laid the the bread and the fish to bless it, and that's the sacred stone. is now under the altar, and you see in front of the altar something. Looking a little closer, you can see what's there. This mosaic goes back to the mid-5th century, 460 or so, and is rediscovered when they excavated the church. And they built this new church on the same foundation as the original church, and that is the mosaic that goes back to about 450 B.C. And you can go there and see it today. It's a, it's a very famous picture, the fish and the loaves, celebrating this feast, a worshipful feast, of provision by the Father. He withdrew privately to a solitary place. Now, now, why did he do that? Scripture doesn't tell us, but again, when you read narrative, put yourself in the story and ask, what's the tone of voice? What's the expression on faces? What's going on? If I were standing there, how would I be feeling? That's why you read narrative. So I ask myself, why does he withdraw to a solitary place? We know that he does. I think he does it because he's mourning the death of his cousin. Others say he did it to avoid the political brouhaha around the assassination, and others just leave it blank. I think he's mourning the loss of his brother or his cousin. And he goes away from the crowds, away from the center of politics, away from all the action to a private place, which reminds us what he did right after he was baptized. He went away into the desert to be alone with God for 40 days. It reminds us what's going to happen in the garden later on when he's going to go be by himself to prepare for the crucifixion where he's going to be completely alone. That's what I think is happening as he's going through this man of sorrows acquainted with griefs, as Isaiah 53 tells us. Hearing this, the crowds followed him. Okay, now you're with them. You're one of the crowd. Why are you following Jesus? are you following Jesus? See, put yourself in the story and think about it, feel about it. Why are you following Jesus? It's going to get you in trouble because, you know, he's, he's a cousin to the guy who just got assassinated. And when I think about this, I think why they're following Jesus, I think what they're doing is they're following out of need because they've seen him provide in other ways. But I think they're also following out of, more importantly, they're following out of faith. And their faith is in Jesus and what he's doing. It's not they have faith in something he's going to do. They have faith in him 
that he is God's presence with them in a way they don't yet fully understand. And they're following because of need and faith. That's exactly where we are today. Whatever the need is, the faith is, this man is God come to be with me, whatever the need is. When Jesus landed, he saw the large crowd, he had compassion, healed their sick. He responds with compassion and healing to the crowds. Now, why did he go there, in my interpretation? To get away so he can grieve. And when you're really grieving, you sure don't want a bunch of strangers around giving you trouble. But when he sees the meddling strangers come to join him, just ordinary people and crowd of him, instead of, guys, can't you just give me five minutes? He has compassion and meets their need with healing. And as the story goes on, he also meets it with provision. See, this is the grace of God at work. This is the pattern for our lives. Is are we interruptible by people who ask us for a, a bit of grace, a bit of compassion, a bit of help? It's the pattern of the worshipful feast. Now, I like this story, the way it works out. What did the disciples do here? They came to him and Apparently, Jesus has gotten lost in the busyness of all the healing and all that kind of stuff. And they come, and the way I read it anyway, they command him. Come on, send him home. I mean, get it, pay attention, Jesus. It's late. You've forgotten, haven't you? Disciples, good guys or bad guys? They're good guys trying to figure out who Jesus is. And they're trying to be helpful to him. Jesus, send him home so he can get some food. There's like nothing out here. It's the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and Jesus' response is what? You feed them. <laughs> it's emphasized in the Greek. You, double underline, you feed them. Okay, now you're there. There's a huge crowd of people. There's nothing around. You know, Walmart has not gotten there yet. You feed them. And what's the response? I know, well, I mean, what it says. But see, take those words in print and put your own attitude into them. I don't know about you, but my attitude is, yeah, 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 right. Yeah, right. We have exactly five loaves and two fish. How are we going to feed them? That would kind of be my response. Sarcastic, like, Really? Come on, Jesus, be real. I mean, there's not much there. These are five, we'd call them pita breads, probably. Not very big, and a couple of fish. And these are not salmon out of the Columbia River. Feed them. Feed them. Here's what he says. Bring them here to me. Now, what do they have? Five little breads and two small fish. That's their lunch, probably. One of those stories says a boy had it. But whatever, that's, that's all they had. And they bring everything they have to Jesus. They, bring, they obey Jesus' command, a request, really, to give them everything they have. 
And what they have is not very much. But when Jesus says, bring it to me, they do. What do you call that? Faithful, responsive life with Jesus. That's what they do. Now, you know the story, but now you're there. And you bring these few little breads and a couple of fish. And, okay, Jesus, here you go. And you think, what in the world is he going to do? Well, what does he do? He begins to sing a blessing over the bread, Baruch Adonai, to thank him for the grain of the earth. He distributed, they distributed, they all ate, were satisfied, and 12 baskets full are left over after they ate. And there were like at least 5,000 people, 5,000 men, and a bunch of women and kids. Maybe, I don't know, who knows, 10,000? It's a ridiculous number of people. With how much? Five breads, two fish, and the blessing of Jesus. They brought everything they had, but it sure wasn't much. It sure wasn't much. Jesus multiplies their little to provide a huge feast. See, this is a context of need and faith and worship and God's presence. Two feasts. The Feast of Indulgence in the Palace. And we know those feasts. We know those feasts. And a worshipful feast in the desert. The first feast, well, it's selfishness. Herodias is protecting herself. Herod is protecting herself. The second fish, though, no, compassion. See the contrast in the two? The two feasts. The first feast is a feast of sensuality, which just permeates our society. Anybody who says no to sexuality in the kind of mainstream is looked as an absolute idiotic prude. The second one is a feast of sharing. Two feasts. The first feast is a feast of manipulative scheming in order to put an end to an obnoxious person. The second one is a feast of blessing people. The first feast is a feast of deprivation, ultimately taking away the life of a godly man. But the whole thing is about bringing stuff to me, take it away from you and give it to me. The second feast is a feast of provision, two feasts contrasted by Matthew the author. The first feast, well, it's murdering. The second feast is healing. Again, the contrast is deliberate. The first feast, well, it's, to contemporary terminology, canceling. We're going to cancel this guy for sure. Though to be sure, the blood of the martyr endorses the speech. The second one is edifying, building up the reluctant disciples to do incredible work. The contrast is stark. 
the it just gosh John the Baptist as we think about what this looks like John the Baptist put his life on the line to speak for to call sinners to repentance now, at least the way I read John the Baptist He's very clear in speaking sin, but it's not a way to say you're a blankety-blank going to hell. It's a, I have good news for you. Messiah can bring forgiveness and healing to you. But in Herodias and Herod and Salome and that feast of indulgence, it costs him his life. I also note here, and he just can't miss this, it's true then, it's true now. Jesus uses what his church brings to him, which may not be very much, but in their case, it's everything they had, and he empowers them, us, to serve the world. I just, I love, love, love this picture. I didn't know it until just a few minutes ago, uh, that our church people fed the staff and faculty at East Gresham Elementary. I mean, that's what we do around here. I just didn't know it. And that's what we do. We take the little we have to bless people, and God multiplies it for great impact. That's what we do, because we're a church. In the story that we didn't read here, the story of Jesus unable to do miracles in Nazareth because he was seen as, oh, you're just, we know who you are. By rationalism, they stopped him, and he couldn't do miracles there because they refused to believe him. Their rationalism, you're just a kid, we know who you are. Quit putting on errors around here, we know you. And rationalism stops the work of God. In the first feast that we just looked at, it, his work is stopped by sensualism. And when we indulge our sinful passions, it stops the work of God. And in the third feast, the work of God is hindered, briefly, by realism. Jesus, we only have five breads and two fish. That's realism. I'm a realist. I'm a rationalist. I'm not so much the sensualist. But I can stop God pretty effectively if I let those things dominate my life. This is a question I find myself thinking. Because, see, it's not just Herod and Herodias who's got wickedness in them. It's me, too. It's us, what will we do with the wickedness that's in us? And this is one of my life verses, Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. And I've invited all of you, and so you take it up regularly, to point out the wickedness and the obnoxiousness and annoyingness that's in me, which I really appreciate. Thank you, Sean. He did it yesterday. I appreciate that a ton. I'm not intentionally obnoxious. Well, not often. Sometimes I am. Well, <laughs> yeah. But see what happens. That's the prayer we have. And I look at this in Colossians 3, and what does it say? It says, put to death. And it lists a whole bunch of sensualities. Used to walk in these ways but now you must rid yourselves. It's active putting off of those kinds of things. That's a feast of indulgence. Don't lie to each other since you've taken off your old man with his practice to put on the new man. Now, what are those? 
Well, the old man is your humanity. The new man is your humanity. The old man is a way of saying you're in the family of Adam, that sin heritage. The new man is the family of Jesus, the righteous heritage. The old man is the dominion of darkness under the selfish and arrogance and narcissism of Satan. The new man is the kingdom of light, the worshipful feast of Jesus, the two kingdoms are contrast. And then he goes on and he says, as God's chosen people, that's us, holy, dearly loved, clothe yourselves with, and there it is, it's the attitudes of Jesus, compassion. We have a goal to do that. Ruth, team, you want to come back up here? We're going to sing in just a minute. Over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you're called to peace and be thankful. I just talked with Chris back there. She couldn't stop crying because of the thankfulness she had toward God. It was amazing testimony to me. We're talking about baptism as communidad, and people would be baptized, come out of the water crying because of the gratitude to God who had saved them. That characterizes our lives because we're at a worshipful feast of provision. How to respond to the wickedness in and around me? Well, Romans 12. So we can do the cancel culture and all the kind of stuff with that. We can go and watch whether you're Fox News or MSNBC and get all angry about them evil people, but that's not what it says. Bless those who persecute you, he says. Rejoice those words, mourners and mourn, live in harmony with others, do not be proud, do not associate with a position, do not be conceited, do not repay anyone evil for evil. As far as possible, live in peace with everyone. I could read you the whole thing, but go read it. But the last thing he says here in Romans chapter 12 is, do not be overcome by evil, feast one, but overcome evil with good, feast two. Which feast will you go to today? See, I find myself thinking this, and I think about it a lot as I've been pondering on this passage, and I want us to think about it together today, here and as you go. What little can I bring to Jesus that he can empower me to bring blessing and healing and compassion into the lives of others. There's all kind of, well, I don't have time. I don't have energy. I got to, but see, that's the whole point, is which feast are you going to be a part of? This self-centered feast? The limitations of rationalism or centralism or realism? Or the faithful response to the God who wants to bless us so he can bless others? You see, Jesus is the cornerstone of our entire life. What little will you bring to God, to Jesus, the cornerstone? Yes, he is that way. He is that way. Magdalene, the Psalm, Katrina. Katrina? Katrine. Thank you for bringing your little to go back to Egypt bring God's blessing to that beautiful country. Thank you for your contribution to the work of God in an amazing way. I really want to hear the follow-up. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. 
We were at our elder attack yesterday. Dumb name for us, long-term strategic, uh, long-term strategy meeting. Powerful time yesterday. Just as the elders worked together there, uh, it was a very, very powerful time. And toward the end of that day yesterday, Matt Patrick, who's one of our elders, you know his son-in-law was killed tragically back at the end of January, and, and Caitlin is just, it's so hard being a widow at 23 years old. And Matt's a strong man. Matt is a strong man. Many of you know Matt well. He's one of our preachers, one of our elders, been in student ministry until just recently, went over to men's and missions. And I saw Matt there yesterday as we asked him, how are you doing? And in God's grace, he opened up to us yesterday there in that meeting. And a strong man facing the impact of huge grief and loss in his family and there was nothing that strong man could do. And he just, the helplessness just poured out in front of us. Tears, powerful time. And if you know Matt, he was a little embarrassed by the tears and confession of helplessness. He started to get up and go. And we pounced on him like an eagle on a fish. You're going nowhere. And we gathered around him, and I don't know how long we prayed, but it was a powerful, powerful prayer time. We couldn't change anything about Grant's death. Nothing. We couldn't do anything to help in Caitlin's loss. We couldn't. I mean, but I tell you, people, we brought our little to God's blessing. It's what you do. That's what you do. Because I believe a God who blesses us so we can bless others. That's the message of the two feasts. Will you go to the central feast? I hope not. It's thrilling for the minute, but it leaves people dead and leaves you feeling deprived and hurt. When you go to the worshipful feast, you have to give everything you have. But the outcome is incredible. That's what we stand for in grace. Father, thank you that you're that God of compassion and grace and giving and forgiveness and empowerment and blessing. Jesus, thank you for being the one who showed us how to live with your life here. Died for our sins, resurrected to give us new life, poured out the Holy Spirit and defeated the Lord of the Feast of Indulgence that we don't have to be in that anymore. I just pray for those here who are still caught in the ways of indulgence and self-centeredness including me at points. Will you show us how to get out of those places so we can be fully blessed to bless others? We pray that for us individually and for our church with joy that so much good is going on, but we want to do more. We want to follow with need and faith, desperate for your blessing so we can bless others. We pray this empowerment in Jesus' name. Amen. Go change the world, of course. Thank you for joining us for Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.